Welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Mallard of Merrick Law. I'm joined today by my co-host, Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hi, Evan. How are you doing? Hi, Heather. I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. I'm well, thanks. Uh, we're also joined today by our very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim is a financial advisor and insurance advisor with the Brain and James Limited. How are you doing, Kim? Well, you know what? My heart's still beating. I was just walking my dog and I got chased by an American bulldog and he attacked my friend <laughs> bulldog. No. And it was quite an exciting situation. My my little guy wasn't scared. I don't know why, but um, I'm feeling pretty pumped up right now. And uh, it's a good time to film a podcast. I think I'm going to be very alert today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't need any coffee. Okay. <laughs> um, well, we're a Canadian podcast with a mission to educate Canadians about the law. We interview experts in law, mental health, and finance, focusing on the topics that create the greatest barriers to entry into the justice system. You can find us on YouTube on our A2J podcast channel and online at a2jpodcast.com. Um, I didn't have a dog attack to get me excited, but I'm really excited to welcome today's guest, Jack Houtman. Hi, Jack. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, Heather. Uh, and, uh, and just tell Kim that she, she just needs a bigger dog. That's all. Yeah. Her, dog, her dog is pretty puny. <laughs> Uh, Jack's here to talk to us today about cohabitation and prenuptial and marriage agreements. Um, by way of introduction, Jack's been practicing law for over 35 years. He was admitted to the Alberta Bar in 1973. He has a diverse background and practiced in the areas of criminal, civil litigation, residential real estate, uh, employment issues and family law, but since about 1991, he's practiced exclusively in the area of family law, and since 2002, focused even further from there on the areas of collaborative uh, divorce and mediation. So, um, I also know Jack because I know that he volunteers on a committee with the Collaborative Professionals Association, and he is just a lovely person. So I'm thrilled to have him here. Thanks for coming, Jack. Welcome. You must have got those notes from my mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she called Heather earlier today. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, you, you're, you're our second lawyer from SBLLP to appear on the show. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, we had uh, Mr. Nitin Batia. Oh, well, Nitin's a hard act to follow. <laughs> <laughs> well, totally different subject areas, of course. He was talking about uh, uh, corporate law. Well, his areas of practice, so. Yeah, benefits of incorporating and all that jazz, so. So we're excited to learn from, uh, learn from you today, Jack. Mm-hmm. So I guess I mentioned in the intro that we're here to talk about cohabs, uh, prenups, and marriage agreements. So those are all different kinds of contracts, I guess. Could you explain what they are and what the differences are? Uh, sure can, Heather. The, uh, I think the, uh, the key to remember is that it's the only difference is in the name. Sometimes they're called a 
cohabitation agreement. Sometimes they're called a prenuptial agreement. Sometimes they're a marriage contract. It just depends on the context. So if you've got a couple that is not married and they're living together, we call it a cohabitation agreement. If the, if, if the parties are planning to get married, we call it a prenuptial agreement. If they're already married, we call it a, uh, uh, a marriage contract or sometimes a settlement agreement because the, it's, it's, it's the sort of agreement that's maybe drawn up uh, at a time of a divorce. But specifically, what I sort of want to talk to you about this today is not, not the, the agreements that are being drawn up at the time of the divorce, but the agreements that are drawing up the same kind of an agreement when the parties are in in a good relationship with each other at the very start of the relationship. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's what these agreements do. We get the parties to uh, either have a discussion or meet with us at the, at the start of their relationship uh, to, to make rules as to how their assets will be uh, shared between them uh, in the event that they do happen to separate three years from now or five years from now or 30 years from now. Uh, and it's, it's a really uh, good if we can do that because the, uh, generally the, we've got parties in a situation where, where they're getting along together or they're in love with each other or whatever, and, and they're more inclined to be more reasonable and take a more reasoned approach to how they want things done rather than what the, their mindset's likely to be 10 years from now when they're separating and somebody is angry because of the separation or the circumstances surrounding the separation. And the can be a whole different dynamic and, uh, and uh, very expensive at that point in time. Jack, isn't that kind of like deciding how you're going to break up right at the beginning of the relationship? I mean, who wants to do that? Like, isn't that, I don't know, um, not exactly classy. Hey, yeah, we can get married, but I want to tell you uh, when we divorce, this is how it's going to be. Uh, you know, you're you're exactly right. I mean, it is uh, uh, sort of taking the bull by the horns and saying, uh, you know, this in the yeah, yes, we're. In, I love you, and I want to get married to you, but I want you to sign this uh, a prenuptial agreement. But it's. It's becoming more and more common, Evan. Uh, I, uh, Heather mentioned that I've been practicing law for, for 35 years. It's actually 45. It's actually 47. Uh, oh, sorry. Of course. I should have done that. Math uh, math was, math's not your strong suit. You're a lawyer. <laughs> That's good. She's just trying to pretend that she's only been practicing law for seven years or something. There, there we go. Yeah, I'd rather be 10 years younger, I guess. That's <laughs> what I <laughs> yeah. But back 30 years ago, uh, uh, prenuptial agreements or cohabitation agreements were something we, we rarely did. I, back in the, in the 1990s, I maybe did one of these a year. And, and now our office does one or two of these every month. You know, it's just, it's, it's just magnified. It's become that much more common. And sort of going back to Evan's question about why do this, a lot of times what we're seeing now is parties are getting into relationships for the second time. So they, they, they may have just been divorced. And what they've got is, is the result of that divorce. And they want to protect that going forward. Mm -hmm. Or, or uh, parties are getting uh, uh, t 
together later in life and they have different quantities of assets. Someone's got a large pile of assets and someone's got a small pile of assets. And the person that's got the large pile of assets is wanting to, to pr protect that for their family. And uh, I've even had clients come in to see me that they want, they want an agreement so that they can have a peaceful relationship because it's the children of either one of the parties is wondering like, Mom, okay, so you're you're living with this this guy now. I mean, this is a, say a, a, a mom is say in her sixties or seventies, and the kids are in their forties or thirties, and they're wondering about the intention of this person that's now living with mom or dad, and and are these people going to uh, sort of scoop mom's assets from her or dad's assets from him? So it's it's often uh, family members have concerns that uh, that you know uh, are. are are we still going to get our inheritance, Dad? Are we still going to get our inheritance, Mom? And these kind of agreements can put give peace to both sides of the family, so that so that both sides of the family will know that you know, yeah, in the event that there's a separation, this is what's going to happen. In the event that there's a death of either one of these parties, this is what's going to happen. And it's okay. uh, it's a so a lot of peace of mind in an agreement like that. Mm -hmm. Sounds like insurance in a way. I mean, you're you're just kind of like. This is how I describe life insurance. You might not need it, but you should put it in place as a, as a just in case. Why why are prenups seen any differently? It seems quite, they seem similar. <laughs> right, it's for an if, not a when. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, Kim, I think your remark that it's it's uh, like insurance is bang on. It is insurance. If you, if you have an agreement like this, you are insuring that the, that the property that you've got is going to be divided this way. You know, rather than the way some court might divide it, uh, you know, five or 10 or 15 or 20 years from now. Well, and even even if when they when somebody breaks up, even if both sides are reasonable and uh, pretty close in far as far as what they're how they want to divide things, they're each incurring legal fees normally. Um, there's still some negotiation that has to happen. It doesn't take much to spend a lot more than uh, on at that stage at the end than on a, a cohabitation agreement or prenuptial agreement or whatever at the front end. You, when you're when you're buying an agreement in the front end, you're paying a few thousand dollars. If you're negotiating at the end, you're both are paying at least a few thousand dollars. Yeah. So insurance, great, uh, great analogy, Kim. Jack, I, I often think of it like this too. I, I, I don't know uh, your thoughts on this, but even if they're first time young couple getting married, they don't really have anything. Um, one of the benefits to, to deciding those kinds of things at the beginning, I think, is that it can help uh, build trust and and help prevent kind of negative thoughts about what's going to happen or, or somebody guarding money over here and other things like that, that can happen throughout the relationship. I think it can actually be a positive foundation as far as communication about finances uh, for the entire relationship. I don't know. What do you think? I would entirely agree with you, Evan. I, I think, uh, uh, you know, having that, that sort of a discussion at, at the very beginning, even if both parties have nothing, the, the fact that they're they're sort of acknowledging, listen, I've got nothing, and 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 you've got nothing, and uh, uh, just that that recognition there 
will also sort of twig the people onto realizing that, hey, whatever we're acquiring during this relationship is, you know, we're both acquiring it because we both came into this with nothing or we're both coming into this with nothing. And, and you know, so, so I think people in that mindset at the outset would probably be pretty well prone to recognize that, hey, so it seems sort of fair that we should be dividing everything that we have 50-50, right? But then, but then, you know, it's important for them also to know, and a lawyer will tell them this, well, listen, if you inherit something, okay, if, if, if you inherit something from a family member or whatever, if, if you keep that in your own name, you're probably not going to have to share that with your spouse uh, or, and, and give them some tips of how to handle an inheritance or a substantial gift from a third party or whatever to protect it down the road. Because so often we run into situations where uh, during a relationship or during a marriage, somebody inherits a property and they you know, immediately take it and pay down the mortgage on the jointly owned family home, or they go and buy a joint asset or something. Yeah. And they don't know that, that the very act of doing that is diminishing the amount of their inheritance uh, that they're going to be able to, to save uh, in the event of a, a separation or breakdown. So those kind of discussions at the beginning of the relationship can't but be good. Yeah, yeah I, I, I like maybe. Oh, sorry, sorry, Heather, go ahead. I was going to say, I probably have two or three files going on almost at any given time where there's at least a discussion about what the nature of gifts were that were given during the relationship, because that's another thing that can be a sort of a contentious thing and memories fade <laughs> about gifts from, say, you know, a, a common one is from one person's parents for a down payment. Um, but at the back end of a relationship, the conversation is, well, was that to just me or was that to both of us or was it to the family? And that can make a difference. But if you're getting that knowledge at the outset and making those decisions, both knowing what the consequences of that as you're going along are, I think that can be so helpful, right? That's that's right. And, and it, having that knowledge ahead of time uh, will also uh, uh, sort of trigger the question earlier on so if you get that gift from the family uh, from one person's parents or the other person's parents to the down payment on the home you know maybe one of the people is going to have the presence of mind to say well is this a gift to me or is this a gift to me and my partner and if it's a gift to me you know document it on the in the birthday card or the christmas card you know uh Heather, here's, you know, uh, Merry Christmas, here's $10,000, you know, towards your new house. At least that, that flags it, is that you keep that Christmas card, and that's evidence that that was a gift to you, not that's to right. you and your partner. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So to, be, to be clear, we don't need to draft a uh, marriage agreement when a parent is, is cutting a big check. You just need to document somehow that it's a gift. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Just, that's right. We just well, you know, is, a, a gift will be ex exempt. It's it's a matter of documenting the gift to show that the gift was in fact to you, not to you and your partner. That's right. The I would say the agreement is still better, Kim, because you can be much more clear in the agreement um, about what's going to happen with things like that and the way the way you can determine whether it's going to be shared 50 50 or just belong to one person because 
the, the law that governs that type of thing is called the Family Property Act. And it has some rules and it has exceptions to rules and it has different factors that need to be taken into consideration when you're deciding how to divide things. And that can really muddy the waters. Whereas if you have an agreement that Jack drafts for you, it can say, you know, if it stays in an account in my name, then it's mine. If it's an account in your name, then it's yours. If it's in a joint account, then it's both of ours. You know, think as an example, you can make it really, really clear. So if you want to commingle money, then you want to make sure that you have a contract in place. If you keep it on the side in your own name with a note that it's a gift, it's it's pretty clear that it's a gift. Is that is that right? Because every single day in my industry, we're cutting big checks from our clients and they're going to the kids and we should be telling them that you need to document this as a gift, right? Or tell your kids to get a marriage contract if it's going to be pooled together as a, as a joint use. Is that kind of correct? What do you think, Jack? Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, if, if parents are, are, are giving uh, a gift to, to, uh, kids it it would it's really important to document it but it, with a check it's pretty simple you just put on the on the reline on the check you know uh, uh happy 50th birthday you know uh, happy 50th birthday kim and it's pretty clear that it's that's a gift to you exactly. or if it's if it's not for a birthday or a christmas thing or something like that right right on the check gift to kim mm -hmm. you know uh so that it's very clear that 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 was the their their that is a gift. So it, you can, it's, it's really simple to do it in, in, in that sort of a context. I, I agree with Evan that an agreement is better. There's, there's just no doubt about it. An agreement is better, but you don't want to have to do an agreement every time there's a, 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 you know, a gift or something like that, because quite, some families make pretty substantial gifts almost on an annual basis. Yeah. This is a, we're, we're sort of getting into something that could be an altogether different topic, but but we we're also in doing um, property agreements right now where we've got this generational hand down of of money, yeah. where where um, mom and dad are are uh, selling a, a business or they've got a, a business that's been in the family for a long time, and as a generational thing they they may be. Uh, selling the business or moving some people of the, from the family up into management, but other people that aren't being moved into management, they're getting paid large sums of money. And sometimes when those sums of money are being paid, we are, we are doing agreements that we get spouses to sign to that the actual, the agreement recognizes that this money is coming from, from the husband's family or the wife's family. It's a gift to him or her. And it's, and it's being given to them on the condition that their spouse is not getting any interest in this or any right to any increase in value. Mm -hmm. And we'll have the spouse sign that agreement. And we'll actually even pay the spouse something uh, uh, to, in, in, to give valuable consideration for that. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a sort of another sort of ex explicit layer of these of these. Uh, 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 cohabitation agreements or or uh, uh, property agreements, but the the real purpose of these agreements is to uh, either protect property that you've got, or make rules for how you want to share property in the event that the relationship ends, and. Uh, 
so it, when if someone is coming in to to, to see me uh, and and they haven't had discussions with their partner but they want to have discussions with their partner uh, I, I will I'll act as a, as a mediator and I will sit down with both of them and say okay so you would you would like to do a premarital agreement or you'd like to do a cohabitation agreement the first thing we ask is okay exactly what do you have what property do you have and it's it's really important that both parties disclose all the property that they have there's got to be a full disclosure on these things uh and that just adds uh, uh another layer of safety to the agreement because you can you can only protect what's disclosed if you're hiding something and it's not covered in the agreement it's not going to be protected so we find out what the property is and then what do you want to do with that what are your what are your goals and what are your concerns and sometimes that you know the, the goals will be like well i've got this property from my from my marriage my first marriage or i've got this property from an inheritance or whatever i've got a lot more than this other person and i i want to save this for me or for my kids and my grandkids or whatever and and yeah i'm prepared as we go forward in this relationship i'm certainly prepared to to share whatever we get going forward with my new partner but this little nest egg i've got uh, i want to i want to preserve that and, and sometimes we've got a, the situation where both parties have a nest egg that they want to preserve. Yeah. And, and so that's where we sort of enter into these agreements that I, just for lack of a better name to call them, I call them the your pile, my pile, our pile agreement, where the parties will quite often say, okay, here's my assets, and we list them. And here's the other party's assets, and I list them. And then we say that these assets are are in, in in pile a are always mine and any increase or decrease in the value of that is always mine and if i take something out of that pile and i buy another asset with it that new asset is still mine because it comes basically comes from the original pile right. and the same thing will apply to your pile okay and i'm going to leave my pile to my kids and you leave your pile to your kids or or, or whoever and then we can create, if we want, a third pile. And we can say, but we are going to have an our pile. Mm -hmm. The our pile might be the house we're living in, or you know, maybe that, uh, that investment condo in Canmore, or, or whatever. And then we'll decide with the our pile, okay, how is that going to be dealt with? And if it, sometimes in the our pile, uh, maybe the parties are in a position where they have they can contribute equally to that asset that little uh, that uh, that townhouse in Canmore or whatever yeah. and it's not unusual in, in those agreements to see well okay we'll you know we're going to share the Canmore property we're going to contribute equally to the expenses of that property but if we separate that property is going to be sold and the proceeds divided 50-50 between us okay. But it doesn't have to be that way. The parties can agree to be different. I've had situations where one party has a lot more money than the other. And they say, well, okay, well, you know, even if we buy the Canmore property and whatever, in the event that we separate, it's still going to be divided 50-50 or 60-40 or 70-30 or whatever they want. They can, they can do whatever they want, okay? okay, which is the beautiful thing because a court wouldn't do that.
Okay. So then, so then this couple, once they've got this arrangement together, they, they going forward, they know that my assets are mine and they're safe for my kids and grandkids and his are his. And then the only thing that we've got in common is anything that we buy from, from this point forward. And so my family, I can go to my family, my, my kids, my executor of, of my estate and say, listen, if I've got this agreement with this person I'm living with, this is what it says. Uh, you know, if something happens to me, you know, you kids are going to get this part of the estate. All, my estate is still going to you guys, but you're going to have to clean up this Canmore property. That's the outstanding thing. And he can tell his family exactly the same thing. And there's, there's a big comfort level in being able to do that. And, and, and that's, that's what we do in these agreements. And, and these agreements can be uh, as many and as varied as there are circumstances that the, that the parties have. Um, Jack, I have a question a little bit about, I mean, I guess classically we see them as prenups, maybe in TV or, you know, you just hear about them from friends or whatever um, about, and I think I've seen the phrase ink on the, ink on the wedding dress, ink spilled on the wedding dress. How important is sort of timing and negotiation of these agreements to their validity? That's a really good question. Uh, it, it, the, the timing is uh, very important. If, if a couple is getting married, the, the, the farther away from that wedding date that that agreement is signed, the better it is. Because as you get, if, if you have an agreement that's signed just the day before the wedding, after you know, you've got uh, 250 guests flying in from all over North America and, all, and, and somebody is, has an agreement thrown in front of them and says, sign this. Well, first of all, they don't have, they don't have legal advice, which is something I'll, I'll talk about in a second, but, but you need independent legal advice to make one of these agreements valid. But secondly, that person could be under duress. And if you're under duress when you sign an agreement, then the agreement can be set aside because you're signing it under duress. And so that's why it's important that the agreement not be signed the day before the wedding, but six months before or eight months or a year before. Okay. So timing, timing is critical. And, and, and this maybe while we're on that, for these agreements to be valid under the Family Property Act in Alberta, They've got to be in writing, okay, and they've got to be signed by you and by the other person. But each of you has to sign it in front of your own lawyer and get independent legal advice from your own lawyer about what your rights would be if you didn't have that agreement and what your rights would be if you did have the agreement so that you understand what you're getting yourself into. Right. And in the lawyer signed certificates that say that I explained this agreement to the person and I'm satisfied that they understand the agreement and I'm satisfied that they are not under duress by the other party. So those are sort of critical components that, 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 that have to be met for the agreement to be valid. And so it, it's, I think it would be pretty hard to get uh, a, a lawyer to, 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 to sign an agreement for you the day before the wedding, although I know it has happened. I mean, you know, somebody's going into a lawyer's office on Friday to sign a, 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 a prenuptial agreement and they're getting, getting married on, on Saturday. 
but ever happened, right, Heather? I think that's sort of a an agreement. Uh, if if that's what the sort of circumstances it's signed under, uh, I think there's a there's a good chance that there's the rest there. That that could be overturned and it might impact its validity. What's the alternative then for a couple that might be, you know, I mean, they're buying wedding dresses and tasting cake and picking out napkins. So, you know, maybe they think about it as an afterthought and they really want this. So what happens then if they are the Friday before the Saturday? Can they sign an agreement after the wedding? They sure can. It's just, it's the same kind of an agreement. They can enter into it, uh, you know, two weeks or two months or two years after their wedding. Right. Again, while, while they're still in a good relationship saying, you know, this is something that maybe we should have done, but, you know, let's give it a little bit of thought and let's, uh, you know, and, and let's put it in, 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 in writing now and, and, yeah. and meet those formal requirements. Absolutely. You can, you can do that. There's no magic in it being done before versus after the wedding. No, and as a matter of fact, Heather, I I, I have actually been involved in a couple of agreements where where there's been some complicating factors, even maybe a, a, some a number of different kind of assets and so on that we actually started uh, the process you know, a number of months before the, the wedding and it never got signed, but, you know, before the wedding, but the parties have signed it like, you know, shortly after the wedding. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I, I just, uh, I did one uh, that th where that exact thing happened just in the last month and, uh, and everything, uh, uh, they, this, this couple uh, had been planning a wedding and there was problems because of COVID and the wedding got postponed and postponed. And then all of a sudden there, an opening came to have the wedding and bang, they had the, the wedding and the agreement wasn't signed. And uh, my, uh, my client, uh, uh, the, the other party signed the agreement, uh, uh, you know, about a, a week after the wedding and my client came in and signed it two weeks after the wedding. So, yeah, yeah I've definitely um, handled those situations in a similar way as well, where the agreement just gets signed a little bit later. And, and I think in some ways that might even lend strength to the agreement in that you can show that there was this negotiation, they entered the wedding anyway, um, and they still sign this agreement after the fact. So that's right, Heather. And, and as a matter of fact, it, like in this situation, uh, particular situation I was just mentioning, both of these uh, parties had, uh, uh, they were, both of these couple were older and they both had children from previous relationships and the, the, the kids were concerned, about, mom's kids were concerned, dad's kids were concerned about, you know, what the effect of this marriage was going to have. Mm -hmm. And so both of these people signed this agreement, and, and, and I know that they immediately took copies of the agreement to show to their kids to say, listen, your inheritance is safe, your inheritance is safe, you know. Uh, so it was, it was a comfort factor for not only the husband and the new husband and wife, but also for their respective families. Right, yeah. So outside of duress, why did these things fail? I hear these rumors all the time that prenups don't hold up in court or marriage contracts don't always hold up in court. And that's why people don't do them. What, what else other than duress uh, would cause these things to not work? Uh, the, the other, the other thing that can cause re, uh, these agreements to be set aside is if there hasn't been proper financial disclosure. And so if you've got, a, a couple enter into an agreement and they they both think that you know that each other 
has very few assets and they enter into an agreement. And then after they enter into the agreement, one party finds out that the other person is a multimillionaire and they're saying, oh, this person's got all of this money and all these assets and, 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 uh, and is it, is it really fair that, 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 you know, maybe that they're living in my house and they're not paying rent or board or, or, or utilities or anything? If I would have known that, I would have entered into an entirely different agreement than, than that, uh, the agreement that I entered into. So it goes back to the financial disclosure. But I would I would not agree with your comment that that uh, that uh, prenuptial agreements aren't good or they they don't hold up. They do. The the, the 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 times they won't hold up is if there if there is some misrepresentation, of like somebody's not disclosing assets or not disclosing you know tons of debt uh, or uh, uh, you know something like that. Or if there's duress, but other than that, I mean, if you've got a, if there's a, if there's a, a written agreement uh, that's uh, that fully discloses all the assets, signed by both parties with independent legal advice, the I's dotted, T's crossed, the court's going to uphold that. Yeah. Amazing. I think I watch too much TV. <laughs> well, I guess I guess one question I have, Jack, yeah, speaking about validity and holding up, is. Um, what is your sense for how strong spousal support waivers are in a prenuptial or even marriage contract uh, or cohabitation agreement? That's a good question. Personally, I don't like putting spousal support waivers or any spousal support provisions in those agreements. Um, and, and the reason for that is this, the, our Family Property Act, does provide that uh, the parties can enter into an agreement and, and divide property how they want. Mm -hmm. And as long as the, there's been a full financial disclosure and, and as long as the parties have gotten independent legal advice and signed the agreement, then that will be upheld. There's very specific provisions that allow that. Spousal support is something that's dealt with under the Divorce Act or the Family Law Act for if it's common law couples, and there is no, there are no similar provisions in the Divorce Act or the Family Law Act that allow people to specifically contract out of spousal support. So a spousal support agreement is the, the, the presence of one is is simply another factor that a court would look at in deciding whether or not to award uh, spousal support. A court can look at the agreement and say, well, yeah, there's a there's a spousal support waiver here, but we're not going to give any weight to it because, you know, the, the, when this agreement was signed, the parties didn't have any kids. And now this lady's had uh, four kids and mm -hmm. she's been out of the workforce for, for 14 years. And, uh, you know, we're not going to hold up that, uh, that agreement. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have seen the spousal support provisions in those things. I, I don't like putting them in myself. And when, if I, if I, do put them in. I tell my clients that I think the property part of this agreement is very, very solid. I think the spousal support thing is not solid. You know, it's it, it certainly shows that you what your intention is right now, but whether that will hold up if the other party challenges that, uh, you know, ten or fifteen years from now is a total different story. Yeah. 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 Good. That, that's that's similar to what I say 
too. I, and part of my reasoning for thinking that, Jack, is we do have provisions in both the Family Law Act and the Divorce Act that deal with spousal support, but they're all, we have factors and objectives, right? And they all deal with kind of the breakdown of the relationship. And when you're doing a prenuptial agreement, there's no breakdown of the relationship yet. So a lot of those factors, you can pretend you're really thinking about them and you can write down in the agreement that you're thinking about them and everything. But what I, what I say to them is, look, this is not the vulnerability about these clauses about uh, spousal support wave, waiving and all that is you don't have any idea what the situation is going to be. And uh, so, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? No, I, I, I agree with you entirely. The, you know, the, uh, the, the, the circuit, I, I would feel a lot more comfortable putting spousal support provisions in these agreements if there was a specific provision in the, in the Divorce Act or the Family Law Act that said that the parties, you know, the, the, they can waive their rights to spousal support, uh, providing they do this, 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 and this. But, uh, but there is no such provision uh, in the legislation. So I, I, I think it's a waste of time. Yeah, I often say to clients as well that those provisions could provide a false sense of security as well to either one of you. And if you think you can rely on those things going forward, you make decisions accordingly. But one of you becomes disabled or loses your employment or whatever the case may be. Um, and then you find that, that those spousal provisions aren't valid. Well, you've relied on all of them. Um, I guess, and, and governed yourself, conducted your affairs, um, relying on something that that's not valid. So three yeah. lawyers agree. That is unusual, I have to say, dear listeners. I don't know. <laughs> well, I would, I would just say, Heather, I have included these in agreements, in marriage contracts and uh, cohabitation agreement and prenuptial agreement. I've included them and I've worded them to the best of my ability to survive and be effective. But um, until one of my agreements gets tested in court, I have no idea how they're going to hold up uh, because there's only so much you can say because the, you know, the court can, uh, using the legislation, they can override. Uh, they definitely have at least some scope to override such an agreement. I, I agree with you entirely on that, Evan, and, and I, I have done them as well. You know, and I, and I, but, but as I pointed out, if I am doing them, I point out to my client that, uh, like, if my client is the is the potential uh, spousal support payer, I, I tell my client, listen, you know, we put this provision in here, but you know, if if whether or not this is going to have any weight, uh, if an application is made for spousal support, I can't give you any guarantee of that at all. It's, you know, it's, it's just a factor that a, a court's going to look at. Well, you had this intention back in 2010 when you did the agreement, but, you know, uh, maybe things have changed a lot between 2010 and when the, uh, when the application for support is made. Yeah, and that's, that's, I think it's important to note, that's different than other contracts because all the other terms of the contracts, of any contract, generally speaking, doesn't really matter that things change. You, whatever you agree, you agree, and the courts will uphold 
the party's like ability to decide what how they want their relationship to go. But I think the big difference with spousal support is what the law says. And the law has specific factors and objectives that apply to spousal support that, uh, as Jack mentioned, there's nothing that says you can contract out of those. And so if you just can't take into consideration those factors and objectives because the situation is just so significantly different than was contemplated in the agreement, then the court can just can overturn it in a way that they can't normally do in contracts. That's right. And, and, and as those, when the court, the factors and objectives that the, the court looks at, they're applying that 20 years down the road, looking at, at, at what the, what the facts are then, not what the facts were when the agreement was signed. Right. One other one other thing that uh, we often do in in these agreements is we uh, and especially in, in agreements where where we're dealing with uh, with older couples uh, where they're living in in one one of the party's houses. Uh, quite often, uh, we've got this couple comes together. They've got they've got pooled assets or they were hardly they got separate pools of assets and and included in those assets person a is the owner of the house and they're this couple they agree that they're going to live in person a's house so they get married and they're they're living in person a's house that's what that's what the plan is uh, but but person a usually wants that that house to that's part of their estate, that's part of their pile. Uh, they, they want that to ultimately go to their kids. But we sometimes put special provisions in to deal with that house in the event that that person dies. Uh, and, we, and we often put a provision in the agreement that, that lets the surviving person continue to live in the house for six months or eight months or something like that after the, the death of the, of the homeowner uh, because otherwise, the uh, on the on the death of the homeowner, the the other person, the, the a they've not only lost their partner, but b they lose a place to live, and so it just sort of allows them to, to continue to live in the house for a transitional period of time, you know, three months, six months, eight months, something like that, uh, and we usually say that, you know, they get to live in there, providing that while they're living there, you know, they continue to pay the, you know, the uh, the condo fees or the uh, the taxes the insurance the utilities and and all that sort of stuff and and if if the house is going to be sold they you know they'll they'll cooperate with 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 realtors and for the showing of the house and so on so it's a uh it's again it's a comfort factor uh to to that person in the relationship knowing well yeah the house is in his pile or her pile, but in the event that they died, I still get to live here for six months. I'm not going to be thrown out on my ear the day of the funeral. Right. You know? Yeah, that can bring a lot of comfort, I'm sure, to folks. Could that be challenged if the person who is the survivor doesn't have the financial capacity to, to put a roof over their head? I, that's a great question, Kim. That's that's that goes to a state administration more than uh, family law. Um, there, what I can say about that is in the Wills and Successions Act, there is um, that provides the ability for a dependent spouse or partner to bring a claim against the estate if they have not been um, provided for, uh, so that their needs are met needs are met. So 
maybe is the answer, but it might not come in. It might not come in the way that they, they can still live in the house. It might come in the form of some other like cash from the estate or something like that. And, and that's, that's of course sort of goes back to that other uh, sort of preliminary question. What, do the what are the assets that each person has at the start of the relationship because if 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 you see that one person has got all assets and the other person has got nothing and then you're 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 factoring in okay well what happens if this the wealthy person dies and you're leaving this pauper without any uh, a roof over their head maybe some accommodation has to be made so it's it, that if we if we know what all the assets are ahead of time and what the concerns are, we can deal with that issue. Part of that mediation process, then I guess what you're talking about, right? Sharing yeah. information, coming up with a suitable agreement. That's right. Yeah, it's 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 trying to find out, you know, finding out what assets they've got and 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 what they want to do with them. And and it's usually it's. Uh, it's always the ex extreme situations that always make the great court cases. You know, it's always the one where the, you know, you got the multimillionaire person who's married to the pauper because that's the one where the, the, the pauper doesn't own the house and uh, uh, they've, they've got nowhere to go. And that's the, that's the situation that's going to go to court. Yeah. Um, the other thing that folks often have to resolve if they do end up in the breakdown of a relationship is kids. So custody, parenting, um, and child support. Can those kind of things go in a separation agreement? I mean, in a cohabitation agreement <laughs> or a prenup? You, you can, you can certainly put them in uh, uh, you, you can certainly put provisions with respect to parenting mm -hmm. and and child support mm -hmm. in a, a cohabitation agreement or, or a prenuptial agreement. Uh, but the 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 thing that you have to be careful of there is exactly the same problem that you've got as with dealing with spousal support that we were talking about earlier. Right. Is that by the time uh, there's a separation or whatever, the circumstances might be quite different. And, and the court always has jurisdiction to make an order with respect to child support that is different than what the parties may have agreed to three or five or 10 years before. And child support always has to comply with the federal child support guidelines, no matter what any agreement says. So that's going to come into play. So, so I suppose, the answer to that is you can put that into these sort of an agreement or these, these sorts of agreements. Mm -hmm. But um, if you wonder about how worthwhile it is doing it, because if they don't separate for, for, for five or 10 or 15 years, the circumstances yeah. are going to be entirely the same. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I can't think of any agreements that I have done that are either cohabitation or prenuptial agreements with parties that are uh, uh, planning to get married uh, or planning to live together where I've actually put in any provisions with respect to to parenting or or, or, or child support. Yeah. And yeah. I've rarely put in provisions with respect to spousal support. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Well, let's change the situation a little bit, Jack. Uh, a marriage contract, as you mentioned, I think at the beginning is the the only difference is that that is an agreement that is entered into when the parties are already married, but are not necessarily contemplating getting divorced anytime soon. Um, in that kind of a situation, uh, now where they've already got children, I suppose child support, just for our, our listeners, uh, there's a thing if, if you're not familiar called the child support guidelines, that kind of, it's a, just math, it's a mathematical equation that, um, if part, if everyone is, the person that's going to be paying child support is a T Ford employee, meaning they just uh, they're no, they don't have their own business or something like that. They're just they get paid normally. It's really straightforward to, to determine what child support is uh, without putting a specific number in there. So with that background, in a marriage contract context where there are children, um, if your clients came to you and said, "Look, we things are kind of on the rocks. We're trying to work at it." but we'd like to have in our agreement something that details what the parenting situation should be. We know it'd have to change in five years because then the kids go to school and everything's going to be totally different. Can we have something like that in our marriage contract, knowing that it's kind of time sensitive? I think you can. You can put something like that in a marriage contract, but I don't know if it's worth it, if it's really worthwhile doing it because it's it is so time sensitive, and 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 there could be major changes over a very short, a very short period of time. Uh, it's you're you're in the uh, in, in normally uh, when we're when we're working on a parenting arrangement, we've got we've got these children here and now, and we know you know uh, I'm living here and, and you're living here, and we know where we're coming and going. But if we uh, what happens if you know five years from now we have three more children or whatever, and and the kids are different ages, and one of them's now got a disability, and so on. There's just so many things that can happen. I just. Uh, yeah, you, there's nothing. We, you can put it in the agreement. I just wonder you know, if you're really getting out there uh, uh, into the ex- extremes. You're you're sp- you're spending going to spend a lot of time and a, a lot of money on with lawyers dealing with a topic that's you're you're dealing in it in a totally academic sense. You're sort of saying, well, supposing this and supposing this and supposing this, and we'll we'll put an agreement in place for that. And I usually tell clients that you know we can sit down and we can have a discussion about supposing this supposing this and supposing this we can supposing this are to death but we're not going to pick the right supposing that really happens 10 years you still will miss the one that's actually going to happen somehow right that's yeah. right I yeah. think too, Evan, um, that uh, the court always has to make parenting decisions based on the best interests of the children. So I think if either parent thought that that deal was a bad deal or not the right deal for the best interests of the kids and took that question to a court, I think a court would probably have no problem ignoring or giving pr- very little weight to any sort of deal on parenting. But that's that's just my opinion on that, on parenting specifically, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's, those are all good points. You know, I I think if, 
if if somebody did this sort of an agreement like you're suggesting and they put a parenting arrangement in place and then if they separated a month later i think the agreement may have you know it, yeah. it, it's very very right. current i think it, yeah. I, I think it would probably be probably supported by the court you know but if it's if it's made like the, the agreement is made now but then they separate three years later and in the meantime there's another two children and 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 as like i said one of the kids has got a disability and and yeah. and uh, 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 uh one of the parents has become alcoholic or drug addicted or whatever uh, you know yeah. that that parenting uh, agreement is just going to be ignored yeah i think i think we kind of touched on this concept earlier so i, I actually did one of these where there was parenting because it's it, it was a very narrow circumstance where i thought Okay, this makes sense for these people. And this was a circumstance. They they had separated. They were getting back together. And the agreement that they were entering into was part of building trust in the relationship again. And it was very important to one of the parties to kind of sort it all out, what would happen if they separated with the kids, knowing that it was only applicable for like a couple of years. And so, you know, there wasn't a lot of confidence in the relationship. They were trying to, to do that. And so they're using this agreement to help build trust in the relationship, which is kind of what we talked about uh, using a prenuptial for. They were using this marriage contract for. So it provided peace of mind to, to them that they knew, okay, if this doesn't work out, if us trying to get back together and make this work doesn't work out, well, at least we've got something that can be go right to the court as a parenting plan. Yeah. Yeah, and and I, I think it's if if it works for the for the parent for the parties, that's that's fine. And I think as long as they both know that, the longer the passage of time, you know, the less weight that agreement's probably going to have. But if it, you know, they're 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 concerned about shoring up the the, the short term, hoping that it's they're never going to have to use that agreement. My, my reaction was the same. My initial reaction was exactly the same as yours, Jack. I was like, well, I could put it in there, but it's a total waste of time. Like what? <laughs> It's going to be good for, but the more I thought about it and looked at the, looked at what they're trying to accomplish, it made, it made sense for that very, for that specific situation. So it went in there. But I have to admit that uh, that's, that's really an unusual situation. Most of the time when we're, when we're doing these prenups or cohab agreements is the, the, the the concern of the parties is, is property and, and either, uh, trying to preserve property for both or, or, or somebody uh, or, or, or trying to make specific arrangements for how we're going to share property in the event that we separate. And the, 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 the uh, introduction of spousal support or the introduction of parenting and, and uh, uh, child support to these agreements is really the exception to the rule. Now, I, I've got a question, but uh, I can save it if Heather or Kim, you had anything you wanted to ask. I got one. Is there ever conflict between a marriage contract and a will? And do family law lawyers talk to estate lawyers and make sure that these things don't have any issues? Yeah, there, there definitely there, there, there can be conflicts between what these agreements say and what wills say. And so we will we will tell parties uh, as we're discussing uh, the, the 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 agreement, whether it's a prenuptial agreement or a cohabitation agreement, that that we 
if they if they do have wills, we will want their wills to dovetail with this agreement. So we do tell them, you know, here's here's what you're thinking, here's what you're wanting to do. We put that those provisions together, and then like in in, in our firm, I will I will refer the sort of the agreement and my client to one of the estate lawyers in our firm and say, you know. What we're doing here is this okay? Is this on side uh, with you know, with wills and estates practice, and and also to, uh, what changes have to be made to this person's will or to both of these persons' wills, so so that they comply with the agreement? Absolutely. That, that's uh, uh, that's probably something I should have mentioned earlier. That yeah, that when when we do these agreements, especially, uh, and it's, it's more uh, more important the older the clients are. So if we're dealing with those clients that are in their 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, it is, it's, it's really important that, that, uh, uh, that, their, uh, uh, that their agreements dovetail with the provisions of their wills. I agree. And, and, and Kim, I mentioned before the Wills and Succession Act, the, that's another, that's an act, those portions of the act about providing for your spouse are, is something you cannot contract out of. You can't can't do it. So in these types of agreements, Jack, I'm sure yours uh, have something like this. Uh, usually they say something to the effect of, it's our intention that the property is divided this way and that nobody gets a gift from the other person. Um, but this section of the Wills and Succession Act, we know that we can't contract out of it, but we really, really want to. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We we basically we say that we 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 recognize that the provisions in the act, and we you know and we and we say you know it's the party's intention that this isn't going to apply, but it's just the party's intention, and 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 we you know we we you can't you can't stop a court challenge, uh, of 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 that part of it. I definitely recommend that my clients get wills at the same time if they don't already have them or have them reviewed, get some feedback from their wills lawyers. And just like a wills, you know, a lawyer will recommend that you review your will um, every few years. And upon major life changes, I give that same advice along with these contracts too and say, if you make a big purchase, pull out your prenup and see what it says, refresh yourself of it, look at it and see what the terms are. If you're buying that, um, you know, that mountain, that mountain condo in Canmore, have a look and make sure that the way you're putting it into joint names or whatever it is, goes along with what that contract says. And if it doesn't change the contract or do something differently so that it has the intention that you want it to. That's yeah, that's that's a, a, a good point, uh, Heather, because, you know, when we do these agreements, uh, and, and of course, we're doing this mostly these agreements early on in the relationship, the, the parties are getting along. And so we've 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 had these sessions with them and, and they get independent legal advice and so on. And they've now got this, this cohabitation agreement. But I mean, we want them and they want to have a normal marriage. They don't want to be running back and referring to this agreement every, you know, every day or week. If that's the case, this, this relationship is going to come apart pretty fast. So, you know, so like. I always tell my my clients, I say, listen, you know, make sure that your executor's got a copy of this agreement. Make sure that your executor's got a copy of this will. Put this agreement away in a safe place with your will so that you've got th those together there. 
but also keep copies of them handy. And, and if you are going to make a major purchase, like, and, and what happens is people go, they go on a, a holiday to Hawaii and they buy a damn timeshare in Hawaii together, you know, and they, they don't have their agreements with them and, they, you know, and that sort of stuff. And they're not, they're not, they've got some smooth talking salesmen has, has talked them into buying this condo overlooking the, 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 the ocean. And, and they're all excited about being in the, bringing the kids or the grandkids to that. And they're not paying it. They're forgetting that when they sign the 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 their uh prenup or their their, their cohabitation agreement that that maybe the rules were it, it doesn't matter who puts most money into this property it's going to be divided 50 50 anyway or uh, you know any other provisions that we might have done so so yeah you're right so i tell them if you are if you're making a major purchase stop for a second and remember oh yeah i've got that cohab agreement or I got that prenup what did it say about this sort of a thing mm -hmm. because five or ten years from now they're gonna uh, they're gonna forget uh, like I know uh, just just myself you know like I, I deal with my house insurance and my car insurance once a year uh, two weeks later I forget what house insurance and car insurance I've got you know and I never look at the policy again until it comes <laughs> up for renewal you know yeah. but and if somebody mm -hmm. asked me today you know what coverage do you have? I don't know, you know, and, 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 and so it's, it's one of those things that just, as, as you said, Heather, before you make that big purchase, just say, Oh, hang on. Maybe we should look at the agreement first. Yeah. yeah. It, having those specific rules about how, how you hold property means who gets it is not useful to you. If you think you're following them, but aren't right now. Yeah, if you're not, yeah, managing your stuff accordingly. Mm -hmm. um, I, I tell folks to put that photocopy of the birthday card in that same folder, any of that stuff, and not in a not in a surreptitious way, right? But to say, oh, hey, you know, mom and dad gave us this gift. Let's put this in the folder with the prenup, right? Like have it be a conversation to like normalize those financial discussions within a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So my my question, and it's okay if we don't have time to for you to really give a good answer to this question, but I was thinking we've talked about, we've kind of flirted with this topic a few times throughout this conversation, and I was wondering if you felt comfortable kind of giving us a succinct explanation to what the default rules are for property division. Okay, it, it's... They're they're long and complex, and I'll I'll basically give it to you the best I can. So let's. Do it. There's a disclaimer here. Jack is not giving us the entire law. He's just giving us a summary. This is not okay. legal advice, right, Jack? So if you're so if you're if you're married, uh, or if you've been in a common law relationship in Alberta for over three years, and you without a. a, a a cohabitation agreement or, or a prenuptial agreement or a, a property agreement. What's going to happen is all of the property that you have acquired uh, during your relationship is going to be divided between the two of you. So what we basically do is we take a list of all of the assets and from that we subtract all of the debt and the difference is going to be divided 50-50 between the two of you. That's sort of the starting proposition. But 
there's a uh, after we list all of the assets and subtract all of the debts, we're going to get a number. Let's call that net worth. Okay, from that net worth number, certain items are exempt from that property distribution, and and what the exempt uh, items are, and they're, and they're described in Section Seven of the Family Property Act, and that is the value of any property you had at the, uh, before the marriage or at the start of the relationship, the value of any gift that you received during the relationship, the value of any inheritance you received during the relationship, the proceeds of any tort claim that you received during the relationship, a tort claim being like an injury accident, compensation for damage to your body, or the proceeds of an insurance policy that relates to property that's owned by you, not by the two of you. Those values are hived out and not shared. So if you if you had property before the marriage, that goes to you. If the other person had property before the marriage, the value of that goes to them and so on. And it's the property that's left after that would be divided 50-50. There are more strange and weird rules if, if you had property before the marriage and uh, you use some of that property before the marriage or some of that gift that you received or whatever and then you put it into a joint asset like the joint family home or a joint bank account or whatever uh, those are the the, the the rules are designed to keep people in court uh, <laughs> I, 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 I think the legislators were they were lawyers that just wanted to keep people in litigation so <laughs> you know it could have made it simpler couldn't they? <laughs> yeah because uh, there's so many times that you run into this where you, where there's enough ambiguity in there for the for the parties to just be able to disagree without being unreasonable. But sometimes you can't, like child support, you can't disagree with that if it's a straightforward case without being unreasonable. So, so generally lawyers don't do that. We just, it's pretty black and white, but you're right. Property, the property rules, because there's, there's also this catch all, right? Like in as much as it's fair and equitable, kind of trumps everything. So even if it was in joint names, there, there's a circumstance out there where you could argue that it wouldn't be fair and equitable, which is another way to say fair, uh, to divide it 50-50. That's right. And going back to the, to, the, to the broad scope that I mentioned, and I talked about this, the value of exempt property coming out. Uh, but th there's there's also provisions in the property act that say that the in that if if the exempt property if there's been an increase in value in that exempt property that can be shared by the parties on this just an equitable basis that, that yeah. you're, you're talking about there Evan that, that clouds it even even further so that where uh, a normal person a normal person on the street has to be really careful is it's just not good enough to read the Family Property Act and say, oh, I read those provisions, I know, I know what it says. Because that's only probably half or a third of the law. The, the, the rest of the law comes from how the courts have interpreted those provisions. And a lot of those provisions have been interpreted in a lot of ways that, you, that you might surprise people. And, yeah. and that's... You know, I don't want to pleasant, some of these subtle, these subtle nuances drive us crazy.
Yeah, there are a lot of factors and a lot of different ways for them to fall on one side or the other. Um, Jack, I have one, one more question for you, and this actually might be for everyone, a more of a discussion question. And Kimmers, I might want to hear from you as the financial person, but do you have any tips for folks out there who are hesitant or reluctant or don't know how to start this conversation with their partner or soon-to-be spouse or, you know, if there's an uncomfortableness about, like, your family says, you know, you'd like to protect some family assets if you come from some wealth or your family has an asset that they want to protect from the event of divorce. Do you have any tips for people that are maybe not so sure about how to start the conversation? You want to take a run at that, Kim, first? You know, I'd love to, actually. So where do you get access to young people? Well, young people aren't visiting lawyers, generally. So who are they interacting with? Lenders, insurance agents, and financial planners. So to make the conversation less uncomfortable, I think it's really important that those professionals bring this up. And then it becomes a more neutral conversation versus one person in the party bringing it up and creating some sort of trust issues. I didn't think about this stuff until I got involved in collaborative law. But I, I can tell you, I think about it a lot. And I bring it up all the time to parents that I have as clients, to young people that I have as clients. And I think, um, you know, they, they are nervous to, to sort of engage in a way because they, it isn't talked about a lot, you know, in family conversations at the dinner table, it's, it's not brought up. So I think a lot of the stigma is around awareness and if more people talk about this stuff to become more common. But I, what I do know for sure is that young people don't know what it costs to go to a lawyer to get this drafted, but their assumption is that it costs a lot of money and they would prefer to spend the money on honeymoon than on marriage contract or a Peloton or video games. So, <laughs> so maybe this is a great opportunity for parents to gift their kids mm. insurance. Because um, I get asked a lot of times, I've got money, what can I do with this money for my kids? And I think, you know, I've never actually brought up, you know, I usually bring up insurance, but, um, you know, I need to start thinking about getting these contracts in place. And maybe parents are actually quite happy to pony up for them. So what does it cost to put these things, these in place and make changes to these things as life evolves? I think uh, a relatively simple uh, cohabitation or prenuptial agreement, I think it is probably going to cost in the vicinity of about $1,500 to $2,500. Okay. And then you can get, these agreements can go anywhere from $1,500 to $2,500 to $15,000. Okay. Because it depends on the type of assets you're dealing with and the quantity of assets and what you're trying, what you're trying to do. But I, I think, uh, you know, a, a a basic agreement, I think if you if people say because what you're looking for at is is these when we draw these agreements up, lawyers are drawing these agreements up usually on a on a time basis because we have to have to spend time with the client to find out what their assets are, what their goals are, and what their concerns are. 
then to discuss the law with them, and then to, to then to discuss you know things, different ways of handling this. Then you have to actually draw up the agreement. This is these agreements aren't something you just pull off a shelf. Usually, they're, 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 almost all of the provisions in these agreements are are customized to take into account this particular couple's uh, circumstances. So you're, you're generally looking at about three to four hours of a lawyer's time as a minimum to, to do this, uh, th this sort of an agreement. But I think we're, we're, if you put that in perspective to say that if you don't have this sort of an agreement and if your relationship goes sideways, I mean, your, your retainer will for, okay, to, to, to to, as a de deposit towards lawyer fee lawyers fees for your divorce is going to be $5,000. And you're probably going to spend between twenty dollars and $50,000 on an uncontested divorce. Maybe this $1,500 to $3,000 now looks like money well spent. Mm -hmm. Well, to old, to old people, it sounds good. But to kids, like, how do we get the kiddos <laughs> to it? Well, maybe that's a nice wedding gift from parents who are concerned about where their legacy is going to end up. Because I actually find that that's kind of a high proportion of, of inquiries that I get is young people who are um, getting getting the idea to get a prenup from their parents. So maybe that's a nice wedding gift. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, it should also, uh, like, coming from a sort of financial planner uh, down, uh, it, it would be really good if, when, when parties are thinking of giving that twenty-five or fifty thousand dollar gift to their their son or their daughter or both, uh, to, to to make that down payment on this expensive new house or or whatever, it would be really good for the parents to know that, hey, listen, if you give this to your son or daughter and they put it into a joint property. And they end up, if this marriage ends up being shaky, they're not going to be getting twenty five thousand back. They're going to get twelve five, you know. And and so, are you sure you want to do this? Maybe there's other ways of handling. Maybe what you're going to do is you're going to loan this money to your daughter, okay, and give her a twenty five thousand dollar loan and have her sign a note uh, that, that 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 she acknowledges that she owes you twenty five thousand dollars, and and you can forgive that loan, uh, you know, twenty years later. Uh, if you if you decide to, but in the meantime, we're going to call it a loan until mm. you know until we know exactly how things are. Mm. So there's there's different ways of of handling the situation. Mm -hmm. They're still providing their money the money to their daughter or whatever their son to purchase the house, but it it right now it's a loan. Which I think this this what you said right now makes our audience gigantic. I think every Canadian should be listening to this podcast. <laughs> not just, it's not just people getting married. It's anybody with kids, anybody with money. Like it's every, every Canadian out there who knows someone who this might be applicable to. <laughs> and especially anyone who's, anyone who's got kids that live in Toronto or Vancouver. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Wow>. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think Myers Norris Penny just came out or MNP just came out with a survey last week that was talking about the amounts of money that parents were chipping in in the greater uh, Toronto area yeah. and, and uh, BC. And it was hundreds of thousands of dollars. So yeah, you make a great point.
Yeah, I thought I saw the number of like $9 billion or something like that was sort of like being transferred from parents to, yeah, first time home buyers. Yeah, I, don't I, know what I, I think I saw that. Was, but... I saw the same sort of numbers, I think, in the last couple of days in the news. And I think they, they were saying, I think the Ontario average was around about $87,000 uh, for sort of gifts from parents to kids towards buying houses. And I think on the prairies, I think it was like 43000 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of money going between generations there. Yeah. But, but again, you know, it, it would be, if that's the sort of thing that's, that's happening, I mean, maybe again, you know, the, the, the parents should be advised that, Hey, if you're doing this, do it in conjunction, insist that the, 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 the daughter and son-in-law or son and daughter-in-law that they have a cohabitation agreement that's going to specify, listen, in the event, that you guys separate, we want this $43,000. That's going to our daughter. That's not going to be split between the two of you, or that's going to our son. There's nothing wrong with having that conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, because this is part of her inheritance or, or from us. And, and we're, you know, and we're going to give the same to her brother and, 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 and so on. And, and it's, you know, we still love you as a son-in-law, but we're not giving you this money. You know, we're giving if, the if money to our daughter. Up. Yeah. 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 And the converse of that is true too, right? Sometimes folks are just like, this is for the family and, you know, here's five grand to go on a trip. Well, I guess that's not a traceable asset anyway. So we didn't even touch on traceable assets <laughs> for our audience. Close, it. Close that can of worms. Yeah, exactly. Jack kind of sighed there when I said traceable assets, because that's a whole other conversation. But um, well, I don't have any more questions, but I think this has been a totally fascinating conversation. Evan and Kim, do you have any more questions? Or Jack, do you have anything else that you want to add before we wrap it up? Uh, no, but I, I've, I've enjoyed my conversation with the three of you. Yeah, I, I don't have anything uh, at this point. I think there's, there's, you know, there's always more layers to talk about, but I feel like we've covered a lot from like, shallow to going a little bit deeper hopefully there's some something useful for everyone well I, th I think the the upshot of this conversation is that if anybody is listening and they say hmm i wonder if this might apply to me okay that would be a really good idea for them to to talk to their financial planner or to talk to a lawyer and say listen you know that we're, we're you know uh I'm, I'm in the process of getting married or engaged or living with somebody, or I'm thinking of, you know, giving some money to my son or daughter or whatever to buy a house. Maybe we should be talking about an agreement with respect to, you know, to cover this off in case things go sideways. Yeah. yeah. Give, give Jack a call at SBLLP. He can help you. Thank you for the plug. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having us. And thanks so much for your time. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you very much. I have, I've enjoyed this. <laughs> All right, well, this has been another episode of Access to Justice. Thanks for listening or watching however you found us today. If you have any questions you'd like us to answer on an upcoming episode, please send an email to access to justice podcast at gmail.com. That's access number two justice podcast at gmail.com. And we'll do our best to get you an answer. Thank you.
Any information in this video is general information only and is not nor is it intended to be legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Mallorick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Mallorick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Mallorick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFE. Darkness of the Dales dissipates, declines because of he who told